Welcome to another great episode of Black Equity Podcast. And I come to you in the middle of a time where there's a lot of things that are shifting. We just witnessed uh, the first time that the NBA players ever sat back and decided to boycott during the playoffs. And it really leaves us in a, a time to reflect and also a time to look forward. I'm definitely, when I saw what was happening uh, with the NBA and, of course, uh, what was happening in Wisconsin and the uprising once again, there's always something uh, that we have to uh, speak to and, and pay attention to. I was very proud of the NBA player for for taking a seat or taking a stand, really. And I think where it leaves me is, as we walk into this conversation, we have to own our own. We got to invest in our own. And we have to build an ecosystem with each other. We got to share information with each other. The reason why this was so effective was because all the players were in one centralized location. Could you imagine if there was no COVID-19 and all these different teams were in different cities? They, would, they, would nece- they wouldn't necessarily be able to have the cohesiveness that they're currently having. And so imagine if we did that in the VC space or the private equity space, the investment space, where we were able to build an ecosystem where we truly were sharing information and we weren't trying to uh, hide something from each other. Imagine what we could do. And so we want to dedicate this episode uh, to all the black VCs, all the black founders, all the black entrepreneurs, all the black people across the globe. We are saying Let's stop and really look at what we can do to gain ownership and what we can do to have an ecosystem of our own. So let's sit back and let's listen to this episode with Kenneth Goodwin. He is a VC and we are going to do an episode called Dear Black VCs and Investors. This is a call. This is a call of action. To all the black VCs, all the black investors in this space, we want to talk to you. We want you to come on the podcast. We want to build a relation with you so then we can build this ecosystem together. So without further ado, let's jump on this episode. I am DJ Motri of Black Equity Network, and welcome to the Black Equity Podcast. Another great episode of Black Equity Podcast. 
And I am definitely excited about this conversation. I've had an opportunity uh, to have a conversation with our guest today. And after our conversation, I said, we have to have a podcast episode. I, w- I wouldn't feel right if we didn't. Uh, I want to talk about the world of VC, the world of capital, the world of private equity, all that. I want to have a true candid conversation. And in order to do that, I believe you need to talk to someone who has the experience and the background uh, in that particular sector. And so joining me today on this conversation is Kenneth Goodwin. Kenneth, welcome to Black Equity. Uh, It's a pleasure, DJ, uh, to be on your show. It's an honor and a privilege, my brother. Definitely, definitely appreciate you being here. For those who don't know who you are, tell us a little bit about yourself and your company. Sure. My, the name of my company is Genensis LLC, and there is a story behind the name. Okay. Uh, it's named after uh, my mom, Jeanette, God bless her soul. Uh, Asia, because Asia was initially the target market uh, for the company. Okay. And Genesis, which is the first book in the basic instructions before leaving Earth. Yes. Bye. So the, the whole intent of the company uh, was DJ to do foreign direct investment. So we were a major foreign direct investment advisor to a lot of the major government service entities, what they call GSEs. And these include JETRO, which is the Japan Exchange Trade Organization, uh, the Hong Kong Trade Development Council, which is of course Hong Kong and China, and the Culture, which is the Korean. And the ultimate purpose Anytime when you do business, DJ, overseas, the target market tends to be firms that are mature. So startups are hard to to do business overseas. Not to say that they can't do it, but tends to be harder because they don't have the infrastructure in place and they may not have the management team or the product or the strategy ready to exit or enter uh, these markets. So the ultimate goal as a foreign direct advisor is to want to identify companies uh, within a certain specific industry. And these industries include biotechnology, pharmaceuticals, uh, information of technology, fintechnology, red technology, uh, later on blockchain enterprise, that, that kind of proved later on down the line, artificial intelligence. And I just got very blessed and fortunate because I was meeting with all these founders uh, basically, their firms were between uh, kind of early stage A and above. So they were pretty much, they already had a product in place. They already had their team in place, you know, no less than about 10 plus employees. They had a market, a market strategy to segment market overseas. Uh, their product was already tested. They had clients. They had revenues. So their revenues were anywhere between about $2 million and above. And their biggest challenge was, hey, they wanted to sell their products and services overseas. Mm-hmm. And they needed that partnership with the government because anytime you do it overseas markets, you got all kinds of issues you're dealing with. You have foreign exchange issues with the currency. You have immigration issues with the visas. You have location issues in terms of whether or not you want to bring your employees overseas. You have tax issues, right? You have to deal with local tax systems. And all these things that the government service entities, they provide as services. So I got very fortunate to meet with anywhere between 25 to about 30 firms and did some deep due diligence in terms of whether they were ready 
because the goal was we had to make sure they were ready to have meetings uh, with our clients, the government service entities. And, and that's how I got to get involved more on the FBI side. Uh, the firm changed somewhat, DJ, over a period of time. I was very fortunate. One of my clients, an AI client, artificial intelligence, pushed me over to FinTechnology and blockchain. And that was unique because that happened about four years ago. And that was around the time when blockchain was taken off around 2016. And at that time, I didn't know what was blockchain, you know, right. like everybody else, you know, everybody's thinking, you know, Bitcoin, you hear this thing about Bitcoin and, you know, people making a lot of money off of it. And this is a lot of energy around it, a lot of hoopla. And I got lucky. I went to an event with the client, the, the founder, and I said, holy Christ. I said, man. I said, you mean to tell me that they've been having this for a long period of time, this cryptocurrency and this technology? And it was one of those aha moments, you know, one of those moments where, you know, the driller moment that Michael Jackson had <laughs> when he did driller and he knew it was going to be a hit in the Quincy <laughs> right, Jones. Right. <laughs> I had that driller yeah. moment. Oh, boy. Boy, this is going nice. to be the future. So, you know, like Jay-Z when he was listening to, you know, a, a, good, a good beat. And my head started right, shaking back right. and forth like yours. I said, oh, okay. <laughs> dirt off, you know, get this, you know, dirt off your shoulders. I'm saying, hey, this is going to be hot. So I got invited again to uh, FinTech Week. Mm -hmm. I was very fortunate. Uh, I, I, became, I was a speaker on the panel. On that panel uh, was a foremost uh, blockchain expert uh, that ran BankX. BankX was a, a platform that there was what they call uh, digital uh, asset tokenization. So basically what it did, it, it, let's say like in your case, DJ, you have a painting and you want that painting uh, to be sold. And in yeah. a traditional way, you would have to go to some auction house and that auction house would charge you a fee to auction it. They have to find a buyer, you're the seller. Uh, they have to you know, have custodian rights for it and things of that nature. But with asset tokenization, what it would do it would take your painting and it would digitize that with token. So now, yes. I like and, that. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So what it does, it, it broadens the, the opportunities for other people to participate in the auction. So anybody could participate in the auction if they wanted to buy the token. Because now cool. in that token, you had equity ownership of the actual painting. Nice. So your chance of getting that painting to be sold was greater and you're able to increase the, you're broadening the equity opportunities for the individual to get a piece of that. Now, the great thing about that platform is that they wind up do, they wind up selling that painting. So they do find a seller. You maintain the token. So you still have equity ownership in it, your portion. You get a cut of the price that's being sold. So you get a cut of it, you get a cut of the revenue and you're able to resell that equity to the secondary market. So mm. you can see the multiple streams of cash flow, which is what we build for wealth. That's how wealth is being built by having multiple streams of cash flow. So that idea of doing that in the blockchain space, it intrigued me. And I said, holy, wow. I said, this mm -hmm. is gonna be uh, something if it's applied correctly, uh, it's going to really change the lives of many people. So I wind up doing a lot of blockchain advisory for a lot of the uh, startup firms. So I, I 
wind up being an advisor to about 10 blockchain firms. Uh, and being an advisor, meaning I was actually helping with the actual white paper, I was raising capital. At that time, uh, many people was raising capital using what they call the initial coin offering process, the ICO process, uh, which now is kind of, we really don't want to do that here in the U.S. <laughs> it's like the forbidden fruit. <laughs> right. Uh, and now I use what they call the security token offering, which is the the proper offering that the SEC kind of follow and, and which it makes sense. You know, you really want to go to the proper channels of doing that nowadays. Uh, but back then the ICO was the way to go and it was easier to raise capital. So you can raise anywhere between 5 million to about 50 million easily based off the white paper. Now the challenge with that was that was not smart money. That was money that was based off hype. Right. Everybody thought that G DJ's token could be the next Bitcoin. Right. What happened was people were saying that their projects would become the next, you know, next Bitcoin or the next uh, Ethereum. And there was the hopes that their prices would go up. But, you know, that wasn't the case. I saw a lot of fraud in the industry. So I became a very prominent speaker in the space. And I kept saying that one of the biggest challenges that you have is fraud. Uh, and they had to be careful with fraud and cybersecurity risk because the, the whole notion of a blockchain is that you're allowing the data to be free on a platform. And I kind of pivoted away towards enterprise blockchain. And enterprise blockchain, DJ, was geared towards more of the corporate. Right. The corporates, they were doing it already. With the public, yeah, I know, huh? <laughs> were they first? Were they doing it before everyone else? Or did they just take over after they heard that it was, you know, interesting and exciting? That's a great question. Uh, they weren't doing it first. Uh, they definitely, there was other projects wow. out there. But what happened was here in the U.S., our regulatory oversight, uh, particularly the SEC, the Security Exchange Commission, uh, was very strict on on using the initial coin offering. Mm -hmm. In fact, they, they semi-banned it here in the U.S. So the regulatory regime was very conservative. Uh, and what it did was it, it kind of, uh, I would say, muted the actual creativity and innovativeness of new projects. So you, you didn't see as many great projects here in the U.S. As you saw in Canada and other jurisdictions around the globe, like Hong Kong and Singapore and those places. So the process here slowed down, but what it did was it gave the opportunities for the larger companies to go in and test it. Because they wind up, they wanted to test it to see if the technology will work in different operations uh, across their firms. So mainly the financial institutions, the banks and insurance firms they were testing the blockchain technology and deposits uh, and payments and custody and settlement uh, and trade finance. So they were testing across those different types of, uh, those different types of products and offices. And that gave them time to catch up. So they were hiring staff and they were, you know, building out their own platforms to see if it could run successfully on their platform. And, and that, you know, and, and they did this in a way they were part of what they call consortiums. So what you had was you had the R3 consortium, which was the consortium of different uh, financial institutions. Uh, you also had a consensus. They had their own consortium. 
you had the Endurian Consortium. So they were basically, uh, you had C3I, which, which is the consortium for the insurance industry. So they were really using them as a way to try to solve problems in their own firm using the technology. And now what you're hearing now in the media and the news, you're, you're hearing that these firms are, are deploying it and mainly JP Morgan Chase. Mm -hmm. I said that last year, I was on TV at the New York Stock Exchange uh, talking about the difference between JP Morgan Chase's coin, which is Quorum, versus the uh, coin that was done by Facebook. Uh, and, and I think that's, that's the um, Libra coin. Right. And I basically said that JP Morgan's coin uh, was a little bit more advanced because it's been tried and tested already. And it's been tested specifically for payments and settlement uh, for counterparties uh, within the firm. And, and also it had a regulatory governance in place because it is a bank and it had to report to their regulatory body. So they understood the difference in governance, risk and controls, uh, which made their platform a lot more safer uh, relative to the Libra platform. And now you hear the notion that the OCC, <laughs> right, mm -hmm. is allowing for banks, right, financial institutions to offer services. But Lord and behold, guess who was one of the first one to do it? JP Morgan Chase. Right. <laughs> right? Very interesting. Very interesting, right? So, and this is what I mean by the ramp up. The ramp up to that uh, was occurring gradually over a two to three year period of time. So the firm Genensis, we went from being the FDI firm to that blockchain advisory firm to the blockchain enterprise firm. And then we moved away and we're still at blockchain enterprise, DJ, but we're also focusing on the 144 uh, global trailblazer fund. And, and that fund is a, a dual hybrid fund where it takes, it takes the actual core assets. I don't like to use the word liquid and illiquid. Mm -hmm. Because you hear a lot of uh, assets that are illiquid and liquid, but I like to use the word core versus non-core. Okay. And, or, or traditional assets versus non-traditional. Uh, the non-traditional tends to be the digital assets, you know, the, the blockchain firms. Uh, and the traditional firms are the ones like the fintech, uh, the artificial intelligence, the red tech firms. These are firms that are, you know, startups or, or firms that are you know, in the stage A level that have been operating for a period of three to five years. Uh, and it's the same case with those other blockchain firms. These are firms that have also been operating for a period of time. Now the model, what it does, because of my exposure or working with a lot of the executives at a very C-level uh, level, uh, I'm able to not only understand their strategy, but also to see their needs and where they want to go at next. And that's why we came out with the Trailblazer Fund because Trailblazer, Genesis was already a trailblazer in the blockchain space. So the notion was that we, we created the first women leaders in blockchain in New York. We created the first urban leaders in blockchain and we were the first globally local <laughs> blockchain AI as a FinTech symposium. So we were already trailblazers and people were already following us uh, to know what was going on in the space. It's a unique fund because you don't normally get a fund that includes both uh, or two different types of assets. Uh, but we take very, uh, you know, we do a lot of due diligence when it comes down to the blockchain side. We only review in our portfolio the top 
75 to 80 blockchain firms. So anyone, any firm above 80, we won't touch it. Because we know that in, from one to 80, or at least one to 50, those firms tend to stay there for a long period of time. Uh, one to 80 is great because what happens between that 50 to 80, those firms are trying to dip down to the 25 to 50 level. Right. Those firms, they tend to have a strategy in place. Those firms tend to have institutional clients. Uh, they're building towards revenues. So they, they're trying to grow their, their revenue uh, business model. And, and these are firms that are ranked and listed. And, and those are the types of firms that would help at least with the returns on investment. So you, you're saying something and I, I have to jump in because there's a question just floating in the air. What, what determines if someone is top 80? Is it revenue? Is it performance? Is, is it uh, profitability? What determines that cutoff of being in that top 80? Right. Well, on the blockchain side, here's a lesson I learned, DJ. On the blockchain side, a lot of these firms don't really have true revenue. Uh, so, uh, right. So they, they go by market capitalization. So market cap is very important uh, in the blockchain space. So that token market cap is significant. It's the ability to get the token to be traded on multiple times. And that's going to increase the valuation of the firm. Uh, or if, here's the plus here, or, there's, and there's a big or, if they can get internal organic revenue to grow, that's great. If they have an a, a, a organic revenue model, that's excellent. If they're able to bring in new consumers, sell their products or services to the commercial side or the consumer side, that's wonderful. The key in the blockchain space is management. Management is key because what you find, at least in the blockchain space, is that you need a combination where people understand finance, but they also need to understand technology. And what you have is you have a lot of technocrats. So it's really driven by the engineers. No offense to the engineers, I think is great. <laughs> it's wonderful. But when it comes down to running a business, it's different running a business to running a project. Right. So a lot of your engineers, they think project, 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 project. You got to run it like a business, which means you have to look at the cash flow statement. How do you manage the statement of cash flow? How do you manage operations, the changes in operations? How do you manage the change in finance? How do you manage the change in investments? Right. And that's, that's the business side of it. You know, how do you increase revenue? You know, what do you do in terms of your marketing towards consumers and towards commercial? Do you go towards commercial? I mean, these are the questions that management needs to have. The other area is the board. Uh, in the blockchain space, you don't want to have 15 people on your board. <laughs> right. right. And that was a problem. The problem was that you had so many board members. You have more board members than executive members. That was a red flag. Because that, what that told me or told a lot of people was that the actual idea wasn't ready to grow. And what basically what they were doing was they were using individuals to attract capital. So the actual project was not applicable. And so the application of the blockchain itself 
they didn't have, let's say, a client base in place. And some prospects, which is key. You know, who are you using that technology for? How are you solving that problem? And, and that was, that to me was a huge red flag. So when we created a fund, one of the things that we wanted to do was focus on management and focus on the board. And then the second thing we wanted to do is focus on, because the fund is a long-term fund. When I say long-term, uh, looking at anywhere between uh, above five to about seven to eight years. And traditionally what you have is many companies want to exit before the fifth year, at least try to. But the fund right. is a long-term fund. So the strategy and the execution of, of that strategy is very important. And that's why management is important. So the execution of the, the strategy was critical. So in conversations in terms of how do you use your blockchain technology to solve problems was it, it, utmost important. Who are you talking to you now? Or you, do you have strategic partnerships with major companies? Or do you partner with other people in the industry? your competitors, you know, get back to your stakeholders. That was one of the things that we wanted to hear. The other area that we do, which is on the advisory side, is is your firm, does it have a culture of governance, risk, and controls? The governance side was built on the board, the ability to the board to know what was going on from an operating standpoint. The risk is identifying the risk. What risk that you see are the largest risks in the industry uh, mm -hmm. that you see internally uh, from an enterprise standpoint, what's your organic risk, your in internal risk? Are you actually monitoring your risk? Uh, how are you addressing your risk? Now, risk doesn't have to stop you from doing your business. What it does, it presents an opportunity to create a better product or create a better service. And so we wanted to hear all of that uh, in terms of if you're going to get money. If, if any investor, not just Genensis, not just the, the 144 Trailblazer Fund, but any, any limited partner or any kind of strategic investor, you know, they're going to want to know what are your major risks and how you're able to address that and eventually, of course, make, uh, make money off that uh, in the future. All right. So you, you're throwing a lot of gems at me, right? There's two things that stand out. There's a lot that stands out, but there's two things that stand out to me. We talked about this board and, hey, if it's over 10, there's a red flag. And you were saying that if, it, if there's a excess a number of board members, they're using those additional board members to attract capital. Can we dive a little bit more into that concept in, in, in your mind? Why do you feel that way uh, when you start looking at that board and you start seeing unnecessary amount of people on it yeah the blockchain at least and i'm, I'm speaking towards the, the digital currency blockchain space it's important. i i think i think what happened over time people got they became more wise they realized that that approach is a, is a sign of immediate fraud uh so and they didn't want to have that impression so mm -hmm. firms now uh, when i look at the boards now of the firms that are at least in the top 80 they're solid. They're really, really solid. They're very particular about who they choose to be on the board. Now, that's the same in core assets, too. Mm -hmm. uh, the reason why that's important is that the board is there to help to advise the company. The mission of that blockchain firm or any firm, that board is responsible for making sure that that company lives up to that mission and serves the stakeholders. 
so the board is there not just to look at it from a governance perspective, but also identify risk. Right. Because anytime you're on the board, if a firm gets into some type of trouble, they're going to look at the board and say, hey, did the, was the board able to identify these risks? And how did they resolve that? And then they're going to look in board meeting notes because it's required for you to have board meeting notes. And in those board meeting notes, they're going to determine whether or not your board was having the right conversation. So it's very important that the board is the right type of mix. And when I say mix, meaning we talk about diversity and inclusion, key, very key. I would even say more in a blockchain space. Uh, I actually heard someone recently say that there was more diversity and inclusionists. And I was like, no, blockchain, the blockchain space has a long way to go. Right. I mean, I know that personally from, from doing the events. I mean, I was doing events because of the fact that there were not enough diversity and inclusiveness. So the blockchain space has an opportunity to add different types of folks, executives, to be added to the board. So you can add more women, you can have more African-Americans, more Hispanics, mainly African-Americans, more Hispanics, Asian-Americans on the board, or, or just, and not just different ethnicities on the board, Right. With experiences. So the key there is to to benefit from having all these different experiences and different viewpoints that allow for you to see where the risks are at. Because you can have risk and not be able to see it if you had the same kind of view and vision. So the board is very, very important on that level. Is there any benefit on the uh non-traditional side to bring somebody on the board from the traditional side that may not necessarily have any true experience in uh, digital assets, but they may have experience with a functioning business overall. Is there any um, benefit to doing that? Actually, that's, 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 a, that's a very good point, DJ. That's, that's actually the case this, this day and age. Okay. Finding is that, that you have the, the traditional side venturing over to the blockchain side okay and it's because of the fact that they have experience like in, in most cases they may have experience in the financial industry or working on wall street working with major firms uh working with mid-tier firms uh so they may be able to use or leverage those experiences and bring them over to the blockchain side to build the infrastructure and that's important because it, it brings those blockchain projects into businesses so instead of becoming a project, now you actually have a company that actually have an infrastructure. And I think that's important in terms of the longevity of that company, because these companies are now at a point where they want to maintain their operations. And now they're looking to seek to grow the business. So as you grow the business, you're going to have to bring on different types of experiences. Uh, people that's been working in the industry and risk and compliance and legal and product development and things of that nature. The technology side, you can always build up on that. You can build up on the technology side, but those other areas are very, very, very important. Now, you were mentioning the fund and the, um, you know, looking at those top 80 companies in the blockchain side, um, but also with a fund is attracting the necessary capital and investors to um, put into that fund. At least that's, that's an assumption that I'm making. Um, where do these investors come from? How do you attract those investors so they can uh, be part of your fund and part of the, the vision that you have? DJ, I, I think I lost you. 
So you were talking about the top uh, 80 companies on, on the non-core side and investing in those companies through your, through the fund. But also on the other side of a fund is, you know, bring in those investors. So then you have the necessary capital. How do you attract those investors? Where do those investors come from? Are they more foreign? Are they in North America? Where are these investors at? And are, how about them also being black investors? Are we seeing black investors coming in and investing in the fund as well? Yeah, those are very good questions. Uh, the first, and, and that's an excellent question, DJ. Uh, it's, 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 it's a mixture of both. Uh, okay. To answer the first question, the, in any fund, attracting uh, limited partners, attracting uh, strategic investors is always a part of, of raising the fund itself. Uh, finding individuals who are, one, interested in their portfolio, uh, interesting in the fact that this portfolio includes both core assets and non-core assets, and those non-core assets being uh, blockchain companies. The blockchain, they're used to, most people are used to invested in core assets. So most people are used to investing in equity in, let's say, an LLC, you know, a company. Uh, so they're used to investing in companies that are based uh, in the U.S. or overseas uh, that have a business model that includes some product or service. The non-core assets is always questioned. Many people will look at blockchain and say, okay, I don't know if I can invest in blockchain because I don't really see the equity of it. You know, what is the equity portion of the blockchain? But blockchain, what it allows for is the token side of that. So the token itself serves as the equity. So the ability to invest in the token, which will allows the opportunity to invest in the equity of the company. So what it does, it diversifies the portfolio. So instead of just having just the traditional core assets, now you have a, a, a fund that's geared towards both sides. So you won't miss the opportunity to get into the next, let's say, I'm gonna say the next Bitcoin, but an all, what they call altcoin, alternative token, that actually has a good return on investment. So the return on investment could be anywhere between 15 or 20 percent or even more. And, and if you have the opportunity in the fund, that fund could give you that returns back to you. Now, traditionally, what I've been finding, I've been spending a lot of time speaking to a lot of the limited partners and strategic investors. They tend to be offshore for now. So a lot of the interest in the fund is coming from offshore investors, uh, mainly uh, angel investors uh, in Asia, uh, as well as in Dubai. Uh, there's uh, several that's coming from Africa. Uh, you have some that's coming from the Caribbean. You have family offices. The family offices are very interesting because they tend to be subject matter experts. So they already have an idea of what it is the digital ledger or blockchain technology is. So they, they, don't feel, uh, they don't feel discouraged with investing in a, in a hybrid fund. They kind of understand already that you're investing in two different types of assets. Mm -hmm. On the US side, it's a little bit more unique. Uh, it has to be done offshore because the US, technically you can't invest directly into a blockchain firm, uh, but you can do it offshore. Uh, you have to be an accredited investor here in the U.S., so you have to make a certain amount of money to, uh, to invest in a, 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 a fund itself. Uh, but there's interest in it. So what you're finding is that more and more people over time are investing in Bitcoin, 
and Darian. So they're investing, they're investing in the top five tokens. So you're starting to see a trend where people are starting to move away and diversify their portfolio. So eventually, over time, you are finding people going into that direction. Now, in terms of African Americans, I think it's a little bit more gradual. <laughs> I like okay. it to be faster, but there is an interest. There is a key interest. Uh, there's more of an interest on the venture capital side. What we're finding now is that more of us African Americans are starting to look into VC investing and what does it take to be into VC investing uh, as comparative to angel investing or crowdfunding. There's a difference between the three. Uh, you know, crowdfunding tends to be, you know, uh, kind of uh, pre-seed and seed, you know, where, you know, angel investing is a little bit above that. And then, of course, you get into the VC side, which tends to be a little bit more mature. So you're going from pre-seed to seed to kind of the, uh, you know, the uh, lower A level, and then goes into mid A and, and uh, uh, what they call maturity A, and then, of course, the B level. So as you move up the scale, you have different types of investors that come along the way. And that, that shows in the terms of the type of equity that you're able to invest in. The actual crowdfunding level tends to be what they call family and friends. And I like to add an extra F called fools. <laughs> right, right. Fools. <laughs> because it's an idea, right. right? It's an idea and that idea, you're trying to bring that idea to life. And you need the extra uh, 100K or 10,000K or 20,000K to create a prototype. And, and that's usually that stage where you're trying to discern whether your idea is an actual company. So you're still trying to build out in your idea into a company. Uh, reason why we don't touch that space is because that, that's, a, that's a space that a lot of due diligence is being done by the person. And usually at that time, that founder may not be an LLC. Uh, so they're, they're still in the debate on whether or not they're going to become an LLC. They're going to take that project and make that project into a company. So we'd rather have for uh, a, a company that actually has a, a management team in place, a strategy in place, and is going towards revenue. So that's the mature model that we like to use. Now, what, what I'm finding in the industry is a lot of people are still at that lower stage level. Uh, but they're trying to creep up. The key in creeping up is strategic partnerships. So you can actually be a smaller firm. Now, Genesis is in terms of we're a petite firm. We're not big. We're not big in size. We're not big in revenues. But what we are is that we are a global partner. So we, we're fortunate to partner with a lot of global firms. So our firms are not just here in the U.S. My day-to-day -day conversations, DK, uh, DJ, are with firms in, in Switzerland, in Germany, in Australia, New Zealand, in Africa. So, and, and that's because you're able to do that if you offer the right solution. So you can be a smaller firm and still have a solution that serves a larger company. That is really good. Anytime right. you have that opportunity, that probability. So let's say you're in a process. I'll give you an example. You're in a, and I have several clients who start off like this. They are in the process of having an agreement, a statement of work with a major company. And that major company could be a Fortune 100 or Fortune 200 company. And the, the client could be a client that's 
less than a million in revenue. But because of the fact that they are having a conversation and there are the probability of 80% or 90% in signing that statement of work, the valuation of that company increases immensely. You can actually use that and say, hey, you know what? You know, we got a 90% probability of signing a statement of work with a Fortune 100 company and that contract is worth about 5 million or 10 million. So what that does, that actually helps you in terms of your, your return on equity. So now your valuation could grow significantly more than before because now you're able to look at your, your future revenues to determine whether or not you have true valuation. And we rather see that. We rather see companies working towards uh, you know, closing a deal, which is what you want to do. You definitely want to close a deal. You definitely want to get the science uh, statement of work. But you also want to have a, a portfolio of that. You want to have a pipeline, a statement of work that's above 50%. And that tells us, that's t that tells the investors a better story. Your storytelling for that is far better, far more attractive than before with nothing. And I think that's one of the areas that we have to prove on, DJ, is, is, is strategic partnerships, not being afraid to work with global institutions. Once we start to do that, then we start to move up the chain. We can get past the, the traditional crowdfunding and go into the VC space. And then of course, go into the private equity space, which is a lot much more broad on the equity side. Yeah. I've noticed uh, as well that the international markets or uh, the international people that I speak to, they are more uh, willing to have conversations about uh, the VC space and more mature companies and more willing to have an eagerness uh, to invest. What, what can we do to create an ecosystem for black Americans to create that same type of energy because these international calls are next level. I'm loving the international feel. I really need to start having more international uh, key players on the podcast, but I'm just wondering while I'm doing that, what's going on back at home to where we don't have that same, that same thinking. Cause aren't we international? We are international as Americans. So why wouldn't we be thinking international in our investing? Uh, exactly. Uh, I, I think one of the things that what I question DJ, one of the experiences that Genesis had, we were fortunate to be mentored in some really good uh, accelerated and incubated programs. Uh, we've been involved with SAP.io, the German accelerator group, um, also in terms of looking at different companies uh, that were from around the world, but here in the U.S. And so that mentorship program where they're actually mixing with a major company uh, along with having investors and having business people uh, or, or people with different backgrounds helped tremendously in terms of global exposure. One of the biggest, uh, to answer your question specifically, one of the things that we have to do is that we have to get past the fear of wanting to work with each other. Uh, I, what I find that in our space, yep. 
uh, is that we tend not to share information with each other easily. Uh, and and it's a good thing in a way to have competitors. You want to have competitors. It's going to be competitors. Uh, but, but the ability to sit back and exchange ideas, uh, to exchange uh, approaches, it's more important. Uh, one of the things that I like us to do is to be able to have strategic, and I say strategic, meaning that look at what's going on in the Caribbean. Uh, there's several opportunities where uh, people like Rhonda Etheridge, Rhonda Etheridge is a dear friend of mine, and what she's been doing in, in the Bahamas is that she's built an ecosystem on, on training and development kids on how to do blockchain uh, protocol in the Bahamas. Uh, and that's approved by the government of the Bahamas, by the president of the Bahamas. Now, Rhonda was also instrumental in getting me down to the first blockchain, the first block, Bahamas blockchain event a couple of years ago with people like Michael Casey and, and Joe Topner. Mm -hmm. and, and Michael Casey is well recognized in the blockchain space. Joe Topner is one of the top lawyers uh, in the space. Uh, he's ranked. But those are the type of the partnerships that you want. So you had the Bahamas, you had the Bermuda, you have Haiti, Africa is doing some work there. Uh, of course, Singapore is very instrumental. Not being afraid to work with organizations that are in these jurisdictions and being able to exchange uh, ideas and build the ecosystem. So companies could be a part of incubators and accelerators globally. Right. But the idea is that you have a company here in the U.S. that could partner with a company down in New Zealand, Australia, which has a very nice ecosystem and a very, a very uh, attractive incubator system, pipeline system, and they can partner in terms of services. And I say services, you could be a third party vendor for another company uh, that gives you exposure in that jurisdiction. And that allows you the chance, a company based in the U.S. to be on, let's say, a podcast or a conference in that part of the world. Right. So that exposure gives you an, op an opportunity to attract more investors. And, and, and that's what we need to do more. We need to do that strategically. Uh, we need to do that across different incubators and accelerators. Another option to do that is, of course, doing that through exchanges. What you're finding is like NASDAQ, uh, the Tokyo Stock Exchange, the London Stock Exchange, uh, the New York Stock Exchange. I had a conference call yesterday with a gentleman at the New York Stock Exchange because one of the ideas that came across uh, uh, my table was working with a, an NBA legend and a billionaire family office here in New York to take their model that they've done before successfully. Uh, traditionally in the past, we've been bringing clients, fintech, AI, blockchain, cybersecurity firms to NASDAQ to do a full day of what does it take to receive capital from venture capitalists, from family officers. So it's a working day. It's not a day where you literally just get conferences. It's a day that actually help you to write your term sheet, which is the most important document in terms of raising capital on both sides, both on the investor side uh, in terms of actually attracting new investors, but also on the company, on the founder side, right? Making sure that your term sheet is legit, making sure that you have the right, you know, the right uh, content, the right uh, conditions in place, 
the right uh, models in place, the right analysis in place, everything that you need to have in that term sheet. And that's a work in form. So you're spending time speaking with VCs, uh, speaking with investors, uh, having meetings with the event, with the eventual outcome of signing a term sheet. And of course, this is done through NASDAQ. So the idea is to take this globally. How do you work with other exchanges around the globe? So it will be a two to three day global event that includes other exchanges uh, that potentially may include the Tokyo Stock Exchange, the London Stock Exchange. Uh, I actually, you and I had a conversation before this about the brother that actually did the first African-American exchange. So I reached out to him. Right, right. And the notion is also hopefully to to, to try to include him awesome. in this in this opportunity because I think it'd be great for him to build his infrastructure, which is what he really gonna, is going to need to attract companies to be listed on his exchange. So it would be a great way for him to get the exposure. But this is what we need to do. We need to know that the ecosystem is not just in one area, it's, it's global. It impacts everybody else. And once you start to do that, the returns are gonna happen. You're gonna get that 10X return. You're gonna get that 15X return, but you can't do it unless you do it by yourself. <laughs> if you do it by yourself, right. it's hard. If you start to broaden the net and include other individuals and other opportunities, you're gonna be much more uh, better. You know, you said, you mentioned that before and then you we're kind of touching on it again, where people are withholding information. As you just said, you know, we had a conversation. I shared something with you. I didn't try to hold it, hold it back from you. It didn't, that doesn't make sense to me. Why are people uh, withholding information from each other? Like you said, it's good to have competition, but why would we not create an ecosystem where we're sharing intel with each other, just like you and I did, where I said, hey, well, here's the information. And matter of fact, the gentleman you're speaking about, he'll be uh, on an upcoming episode. We already have a book. And so... I'm just trying to understand why would we not share that information with each other? I know you and I are, but I'm just trying to figure out why other people are trying to, you know, be so scarce with the, with the information. Well, see, that's the difference between a millionaire mentality and a billionaire mentality. Gotcha. You know, the billionaires don't think that way. It's one of the lessons I learned when I went to Davos about three years ago. Uh, and I had a chance to see and be in the presence of a lot of billionaires. They're not thinking in terms of, of trying to withhold information. Yeah. Billionaires are great listeners. They listen. They want to know about ideas. They want to share ideas. They spend most of their time sharing and listening to ideas because that's how they're going to make their money. And they understand that. I mean, at the end of the day, they're not going to get caught up in the, the minutia of this is my idea. Let me hold tight to it. They are willing to let it go and fail and try something new because guess what? They have a pipeline of ideas because of the attitude that they have a reciprocity. Gotcha. The idea is that if you give something, it's gonna come back. And that's how the universe works. So the, the, the billionaire mentality is to think that way. I think many people get caught up in saying that they wanna be the next millionaire. And in doing that, they get caught up in thinking that this is only my idea. They don't understand that, that and this is what happens in, in both firms and in both non-for-profits. You know, people right. come up with a great non-for-profit idea. And what happens is, is that that founder uh, gets so lost into not seeing the mission, the impact that you have for other people. The ultimate goal is that you're going to serve people. That's why we have a company. Your ultimate goal is to serve, to serve your shareholders or your stakeholders. And your stakeholders 
in a company includes your competitors. Yes. It competitors, right? Yes. When you look at the stakeholder system, the key, the key person or key member of that stakeholder is your competitor. So you should be able to work with your competition or at least learn from your competition. Yes. And, and, or have conversations with your competition. I've seen that happen all the time where firms are talking to each other uh, within the blockchain information, the blockchain system, trying to understand how, did it, how does this technology work? How can we solve the same problem? Uh, so there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, those companies are doing very, very well. They have great returns on equity and they have great uh, returns. So I, I think that we have to get away from that mentality. And in this day and age, this, this COVID-19, this post-COVID-19 should be pushing us to be more inclusive, meaning that it should give us a chance to work together more. And we're not supposed to be working away from each other. It's, it, it, it put us to a point where we realize that we are impacted by each other. So this whole COVID-19, everybody's been impacted. And that mentality in itself should allow us to say, hey, I got an idea. Uh, maybe this idea could work for you. It may not work for me, but it may work for you. Uh, in return, that maybe you see something that could work for me. Or maybe possibly we can work together on something. This, I think that that's probably the better way to go. Uh, I've seen that when people work in that way, uh, they tend to do well. And, and hopefully we can get to that level. Kenneth Goodwin, thank you for coming on Black Equity Podcast. Before you go, how can people collaborate with you? How can they share intel with you uh, and work with you? What is the best avenue uh, to do that? Sure. The best avenue to reach me, believe it or not, is via LinkedIn. <laughs> That's how we bumped into each other, right? I, I, I get more on my LinkedIn than my webpage because the webpage is going to be updated. We're going to update the webpage, but go on the LinkedIn page and look on the Genesis, J-E-A-N-E-N-S-I-S. Uh, we have a LinkedIn page and that's the best way to reach me via LinkedIn, or you can reach me via my email address at kennagoodwin at genesis.net. Uh, uh, that's another way to reach out to me, but the LinkedIn page is the best way to link <laughs> to reach out to me <laughs> this day and age. You've been very gracious with your time. Uh, you and I have been able to sit down twice now and have some really in-depth conversations. I look forward to uh, staying in touch, working with you, learning from you, uh, and then hopefully being able to add value uh, to, to what you're working on as well. Uh, so thank you again uh, for sitting down with us. Any final thoughts uh, for investors out there, founders out there, who are trying to go to that next level and they may need some additional guidance. Yeah, I, I think for from what I'm seeing now, and that's a very good point, DJ, it's, uh, it's been an honor and a privilege to, to have a great conversation with you. We can talk all day. Yes, we can. <laughs> we can talk all day, which is great. I mean, I think we're, we're very similar in that way in our values that we want to do well for the broader ecosystem. Yes. For those who are out there, don't be shy to reach out to folks. You know, I, I reach out to a lot of VCs in this space. You know, I see things as, that's happening down in the Bermuda and the Bahamas, uh, in Haiti, uh, low Tony. I love what he's doing out in uh, California uh, with his idea of trying to get historically black colleges and universities to become uh, the actual LPs uh, to mm -hmm. increase their foundations. I, I think that's great. I like that. He's doing. I like it a lot. I love I need, it. I need to talk to him. Go ahead. Keep going. Yeah, and I reached out there and I said, hey, how can I help? 
You know, right. so it's, I mean, things like that, we need to do more. Uh, so we need to be open to each other because, you know, it's hard. It's hard. I mean, I can tell you there's been times where, uh, and I'm not going to name the institutional client, uh, but it was one of the top nine or top 10 uh, private equity firms in America. I mean, they have $1.3 trillion in assets under management. And I was invited to the event last year, their annual uh, investor event. And I was the only African-American amongst 1,000 people uh, at a five-star hotel in Midtown Manhattan. Uh, and to me, uh, I, was, I was honored to be there, but again, I kept saying to myself, we are, you know, we have a long way to go. Uh, so my challenge to that company was, hey, you got to be able to get other different types of people here because you're missing the opportunity to invest in companies that can grow substantially. Right. Now, on our end, we have to be prepared to receive that. And if you're going to go to the next level, if you're going to scale up, don't be afraid to reach out to folks. Reach out to people who play on that level. You know, sometimes scaling up requires you to reach out to people who've been to Davos, who've been to part of the Aspen Institute. Don't be afraid because guess what? You'd be amazed. They're trying to reach out to you. Yep. <laughs> you know, they're trying to I reach agree. out to you and say, hey, you know, you got a better handle of what's going on in the industry than I do. Tell me what's happening in the industry. So now you become that subject matter expert for that person who can help you to scale you up. So I think that, you know, don't be afraid. Uh, be open. Uh, know that reciprocity works and know that there's something bigger than what you're doing. You're going to get your returns. Your returns will come. You will make your money. But if you make your money with the notion that you're going to help people out, you're going to be okay. Kenneth Goodwin, thank you again uh, for this really great conversation. Your doors are open anytime you want to come back. If there's a new initiative you want to present to the audience, we would love to have you back. Uh, thank you again for being on Black Equity. Uh, thanks again, DJ. You have a great day. Take care. Thank you. thank you. You as well. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another great episode of Black Equity Podcast. And if you are interested in connecting or collaborating with today's guest, send us an email over at blackequitynetwork at gmail.com. And let's make sure that we get you the proper information to do just that. And also, if you sign up to be a Black Equity Premium member, we will make a personal introduction on your behalf and also get early access to all of our content uh, before anyone else. And that's important because you want to be able to connect and network with people before others get an opportunity because people's uh, schedules are busy. And so you want to be one of those first ones that has that introduction and is able to work with some of our guests. So thank you so much for listening in today. Uh, this was a really great episode uh, really dedicated to black culture and the black investment space. And we look forward to continuing this conversation uh, in the weeks ahead. Thank you. And we'll be talking to you again soon. Thank you for listening.